<laughs> okay. Welcome to Unboxing Queer History, a podcast from Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Gerber Hart is a library and archive with collections that focus on LGBTQ culture and history of Chicago and the Midwest. In each episode, we focus on the story of a particular collection in the Gerber Hart Library and Archive. In this episode, we present you with the history of Amigas Latinas, with the founders Yvette Cardona and Mona Noriega. Hi, Hannah. Hi. <laughs> Hannah and I are both the producers of this show. We met up at Gerberhart together with Jen to go through the archive of today's episode. Okay, 14 boxes total. Yeah. Cool. Right. Softball outfits. Those which are, are pretty great. Yeah. Ooh, those are cool dog tags. Yeah, they sure An are. interview with the founders of Amigas Latinas. What is Amigas Latinas? Before we get into the interview. So if you've never heard of Amigas Latinas, um, it actually began as a monthly discussion group for Latina lesbians, bisexuals, transgender, and questioning women. It existed from about July 1995 to July 2015 as a nonprofit and primarily volunteer run. That is a great photo. Oh, yeah, that's, that's her. Yeah, that's her. Mm-hmm. In the mid-1990s, it offered a monthly platica, or discussions, in members' homes, <laughs> and the intimate spaces allowed for safe conversation about identity and Latina communities' diversity. So when you heard this tape, you felt that this episode should be more of in the style of an oral history. Oh my god, so much denim in this picture. Wow. Like, how many shades of denim? Oh my god, this is really cute right <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, this is really cute. Also, she's really cute, all like scrunched. Yeah. Why and what does that mean? So, firstly, oral history is kind of near and dear to our hearts, <laughs> right, Ari? Okay, yes, 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 yes. A little bit about Hannah and me. Uh, we first really came together as audio producers at a queer oral history workshop in New York that was put on by Suzanne Snyder's Oral History Summer School. And we spent the weekend connecting with other producers and students and learning about the practice of oral history and what makes it actually so different from so many more interviews that we're you know, normally encountering. Oh my God, like that this is Two butches on their knees, <laughs> praising high femme goddess. We love to see that. I'm honestly obsessed with oral histories. Uh, they are in an incredible form. And just to define them in the words of Suzanne Snyder, uh, she says an oral history is an ethical interview practice that engages a specific set of best practices with an emphasis on ethics, co-creation, and transformation. Oral history can be used to collect stories of the past and present day or to problem solve and address the future. A few more things about oral histories. They generally involve little to no editing. They use open-ended questions and it's definitely not scripted. An oral history is way more interested in meaning than facts, and it's grounded in reciprocity. So as I listened to the interviews that you gathered from Amigas Latinas, it felt really important to actually let them tell their story in their own words and with very little editing. All right, so 
Here is Amigas Latinas with the founders Yvette Cardona and Mona Noriega. Hi, Yvette Cardona, born and bred Chicagoan, co-founder of Amigas Latinas. Um, yeah. Hi, I'm Mona Noriega, uh, wife, married, <laughs> married, but been together 25 years uh, and uh, one of the co-founders of Amigas Latinas as well. And a long time activist. Long time activist, currently retired, I just retired. Um, and Chicago. I was sort of late to coming out sort of publicly, right? Not to myself. I've right, always known since I was a young kid um, that I was queer, but coming out didn't happen till I was around like 30. And I had gotten involved with a group, helped to form a group called Women of All Colors and Cultures Together, WACT. And through that, because the steering committee consisted of a white woman who spoke fluent Spanish, myself, Phyllis Johnson, um, African-American, and Claire Huang um, from mainland China, the, the diversity there, sort of our, I think our unspoken task was to go find more right, women within our, that part of our identity. And so I was really curious to find where other you know, Latina women who loved and partnered were women, you know, were in Chicago since I didn't really, you know, growing up, I didn't have a lot of, you know, Latina friends. And it was through Amigas that I really met, you know, women who are to this day really close. So participating with WACT, you know, meeting, you know, Latina women who um, came to the brunches. These were monthly brunches that happened the first Sundays of the month in women's homes throughout the city of Chicago and surrounding suburbs. I finally met enough Latina women who were interested in, in starting something similar for Latina women, right? And at the same time, I, through WACT, I was hearing about a group that predated Amigas called Yena, Latina Lesbianas en Nuestro Ambiente, and Mona was involved with that group. And so my quest was also to find out, you know, what was Yena, was it still around? You know, I probably was even hearing about it before WACT and through, you know, serendipity of mutual people, you know, I met Mona who came to talk about sort of organizing, that's my memory, of organizing in the, you know, um, with Latina women in, in the queer community and, um, but came to learn that Yena had not been very active in that year or the prior couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, met Mona, kind of picked her brain and picking her heart, right? Little did I know. And, you know, again, eventually, about a year after WAX started, I always say I remember to the day the brunch we were at was in a home in Rogers Park of a good friend. There were about 15 Latina women sitting around sort of the kitchen table or in the living room. I can't remember. There were probably 60 women there. And somebody said, hey, why don't we do this for ourselves, right? For Latina women. And so I always say that was my moment to seize my window of opportunity. And it was like, absolutely. And so uh, we decided to follow a similar model, you know, because girls got to eat. So you got to have food, potluck. And so on the third Sundays of the month, we started to meet in different women's homes around the city, potluck. But we also felt because it was smaller. I mean, WACT had grown so large that you couldn't really make space for like a, a discussion but we figured with Latina women, it would be a smaller amount that we would pose a question, right? And the first one being, 
you know, what does it mean to be Latina and lesbian? And that, you know, that is how it started. We had our first brunch on the third Sunday in July during that heat wave of 1995 when all those people died. And, and so we always say uh, Amigas was born out of that heat. And, uh, you know, sort of the rest is history. It just it continued. We would do whacked brunches on the first Sunday, Amigas brunches on the third Sunday, and sort of travel it around the city. And this was all before email, before Facebook, any social media stuff was really done. I wouldn't say on the down low, but, you know, through collecting money for stamps and envelopes and flyers to, and, you know, and seeking volunteers for who wants to host the next brunch and, and then putting together a mailing list that grew to a little over 300, I would say, um, you know, to, to then invite women into women's homes. And we would have discussions about, right, what it means to be queer, how out is out, what about raising children, holidays and bringing your partner with, or you can't, and what does that mean? You know, culture, racism, alcoholism, substance abuse, domestic violence, legal issues. We we really ran the gamut. So I came out in my 20s, and I'm a little bit older. Uh, And uh, so I was already out in the community pretty much and had been a part of another group called Yena. And when I met him, it was on the downswing, Yena was. And I was opening the office of Lambda Legal that opened the Midwest Regional Office for the first time in Chicago of a national organization that advocated for civil rights, um, litigated for civil rights. And so I was attending WACT and other, lots of other organizations. I was in the downswing from Yena and I was totally immersed in doing Lambda. Um, and I remember the WACT brunch in which she suggested that. And then I remember going to that first yeah, one. Yeah, I remember when you came in. And it, it, was, it was hot as hell. Uh, <laughs> it, it was so hot, that's right, that the home we met in yeah, didn't no. have air conditioning. <laughs> And so we, we moved the sort of discussion group right out into the backyard. I remember not that that was any better, but I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I remember I came late and I think I brought tomato cheddar for the grill and, you know, so, you know, to continue the eating partying kind of uh, motif. And so my involvement with Amigas and Lambda were complementary to each other so that, uh, I, I could also oftentimes be a resource uh, for women who were facing discrimination. And through my Lambda work, I could be sure that we were, uh, we had programming that was either bilingual, bicultural, have program that was very specific to the Latino community, and then have a built-in, not a built-in, but a, a means by which to help develop an audience to understand what our rights were. So it was both. But I have to say that in that time period, it's very different then than what it is now and so although all that sounds real easy it wasn't it, it was very very it was very very emotional and so for for women to even say that they were a lesbian oftentimes we did not say that we purposely could not say that sometimes because women did not want to be uh didn't want to carry the burden of affirming They just wanted, but they wanted to be around other women and they wanted to have the freedom to explore. So 
today's world is so different when I think about all the emotional, the physical constraints, the technology differences. It was very different organizing then as opposed to organizing now. Well, now we're in a pandemic. So, <laughs> or, you know, organizing is a whole different animal. But when I think about uh, coming out into your identity, at the time when people came out, you almost had to be one with your sexual orientation identity to the exclusion of your other identities. So whether, whether your other identities were immigrant or language, or maybe you were bi, or maybe you were trans, those were not, the concept of same sex was so fragile that you couldn't really uh, add, add that to the dimension because people were just so flipped out just to talk about same sex. And so you were always, it was just a very different time than what it is right now. So literally, so that first brunch discussion that happened, um, sort of like when that ended, it was kind of like you looked around and said, okay, so who wants to host next month? I mean, literally. And then I remember the person that said, okay, I'll do it. And she lived in Forest Park. So I was like, great, now we're going to sort of travel it around. And so we literally met and oh, because she had air conditioning too. I remember that. I was like, we have to find an air conditioned home, you know, <laughs> not hating on anybody, but, um, and so we met there and then, you know, I mean, we literally, you know, food. But right, purposely, you know, purposely tried to have it geographically yeah. dispersed so that it was never in just one area. So right from the get go, we were always trying to be all around mm-hmm. uh, the Chicagoland area. Right. It wasn't limited, but it was limited to the Chicagoland area. We never went, we had women who came from Aurora and from other places. Yeah, New Lenox. New but, Lenox. but we never, but we were always in the Chicagoland area. Right. So like Tinley Park, I remember, you know, was one, maybe Oak Park. But anyways, so I mean, we literally just did that, right? Because then by going to so-and-so's house in August, she then also invited her friends that, you know, we may have never met, right, who were also queer. And they came because, you know, she invited them, right? And then some of, a couple of them wanted to be added to the mailing list. And a couple of them were like, you know, it's cool. You know, I'm here because, you know, she invited me. And that was cool. And then we went to the next house. And that's how the mailing list started to grow. And so literally, I would have, you know, or if I was at Paris Dance, the dance place that had Salsa Night on Fridays, you know, I'd meet, you know, I, I mean, go to come online, right? Like, hi, I'm with Amigas Latinas. You know about us? You want to join this group? It was like either such a turnoff sometimes or, you know, or people or women were hungry for that, right? So I'd always have these like phone numbers inside my wallet all the time because I was adding them to the, to the mailing list. And we kept at that time. Uh, first it was, and then we got together soon after, mm-hmm. probably within six to nine months after. And our home number was the number in like, remember the out guides that used to be created by like Windy City Times and that it was our phone number. And then we thought, okay, we have to stop doing that. So then we got a beeper. You remember the pager days, right? And one of our other Amigas women and I would sort of monitor the pager in that. And that's how, you know, women would find us. And sometimes men would find us really creepy, right? Who were looking to, um, you know, to meet an amiga Latina. And so, you know, we were very good at, you know, sort of setting the sort of ground rules in a way, right? No men in that. Um, it just wasn't right. 
And, you know, but also, you know, some other Latina women were interested in sort of hookups and it would be like, well, look, this isn't a hookup group, right? This is a support group, an education group, right? It's about exploring our multiple identities in a safe space. We take that very seriously. Can't say that you won't hook up with somebody, but that's not what we're about, right? And that was an important message to always put out there. Um, and, you know, we had women hook up and sometimes we'd have women say, well, you know, I'm not coming if so-and-so is coming. And it's like, well, look, we're one group, you're both invited to come, but we're not excluding anybody. So, you know, so the, the, we call them platicas, right? So sort of discussions that were held monthly. And then from that, I would say, it, I mean, that was the bread and butter of what we did, right? And just doing that took so much energy, <laughs> took a lot of work, it took a lot of energy, you know, just to do, right, the sort of monthly brunches. And you know, for a lot of women, it was and like for me, it was the first space I was in where I didn't have to leave my Latina identity at the door, right? Walking mm -hmm. into queer space. And I didn't have to leave my queer identity walking when I've walked into, you know, Latinx spaces. Mm -hmm. And so that was so powerful. I used to tell people that's my hyphenated, right? Some people are Mexican-American, Cuban-American. I'm like, I'm Latina lesbian. That's my hyphenation identity. I can't leave one aside anymore. And so for a lot of women, that was a really powerful thing and almost too powerful, right? To walk into a room with 40 Latina lesbians owning their sexuality, celebrating their sexuality. I mean, there were times a woman would walk in, she'd stay for that one day, we'd never see her again. Or, you know, she'd walk in and the next time she'd bring four women. <laughs> And, and so it was just, I think, you know, that that was sort of groundbreaking that just to create that space where we didn't apologize, mm -hmm. you know, we would never, I mean, women understood <clears throat> you would never apologize for being Latina. Don't ever apologize for being queer. Now that's easier said than done, right? But for some women that really resonated because they knew what it was like to walk the world, right? As a brown woman. So it's like, yeah, I, I'm not doing anything wrong being Latina. I'm not doing anything wrong being queer. Let me say that the other thing about a vet uh, setting ground rules prior, because I had been in earlier organizations and nobody knew what a ground rule was. I mean, that, that, I mean, that's common practice now, but in prior times of organizing, people just came together in, in, a, in a fury of emotion and need and challenging the status quo without recognizing that we all had uh, different identities mm -hmm. and maybe came from different uh, economic or uh, social or were of different races or had different language capacities or all kinds of differences in addition to the one thing that we may have had in common. And so I think one of the reasons why Amigas really lasted is because unlike other groups, there was, because she had done work with teenage moms and was used to setting group norms and how to uh, manage maybe uh, dynamics, dynamics of, of, of women um, who may be in high crisis or need or volatile or whatever. Um, I think that, that setting the tone for safety and recognizing that we all had differences and we sometimes we came in with uh inappropriate maybe attitudes and how to manage our differences without shutting anybody down i think that was an important thing that helped uh, make amigas last 
So we're talking 1995 and that. And Amiga's original name was Amigas Latinas Lesbianas Bisexuales, right? So there was no trans in there. And then we just always would just say Amigas Latinas. And then when we did 501c3, that was, was Amigas Latinas. And so, and I think, again, my footprint, I think I set the pace where I felt because the, tra- the Latina trans women I knew did not identify as women loving women, right? Mm-hmm. Or as lesbian. And so I felt that, well, if there was a trans woman who identified as lesbian or bi, yes, they were welcome to come to the group, you know, that because that's what was the main thrust. And so I remember probably within three, four years, there was a trans woman that started coming but nobody said she was trans. Nobody, we didn't talk about it. She never said anything. And so even though, right, it was like, like, do you think, do you think, you know, it was like, hey, I've seen her girlfriends, right? They're gorgeous. I mean, clearly she identifies as a lesbian, right? Again, in that somewhat of like, that was the language we had. And, you know, eventually she moved out of state, out of Chicago, because, the whole trans identity thing would catch up with her. And, you know, and so I always felt my heart felt a pang about that. Like we didn't do that. So we started to have more conversation about that. And we started to do some work with a kick-ass activist who now lives in uh, New York, Sebastian. When Sebastian was, um, you know, uh, born female um, and Sebastian and um, his wife, came, I think we might've met through the Yego conference and that they came to Chicago to do a kick-ass workshop called um, Tacones a Corbatas, right? Heels from heels to ties. And it was about sexuality, about gender, about the power dynamic, femme power. Oh my God, it was unbelievable. And Sebastian started, had not sort of transitioned yet, but started to talk to us about the importance of gender and that until there's a space for, right, that next slice of the pie, we got to build it. And so that was really important. And we started to do that. And I remember Sebastian did some, you know, when they were transitioning, did some powerful workshops for us. I mean, down to like revealing. And, you know, some women like flipped out about it. But as a board, right at the time as a board, we were committed that this is who we were about and that, right? Now, I remember I had a potential board member who said, hey, I'm not interested in trans, you know? And I was like, well, then this ain't the board for you. You know, thank you very much, I'll, but I'll see you at Paris on salsa night, but you're not participating in the governing body. And so, you know, we did start to do some work. And then I don't know- How, how important that was yeah. for, for Sebastian to do that yeah. work because I think- the way that Sebastian and, and their partner at the time mm-hmm. were struggling and exploring it probably for themselves, but they were able to re- incorporate us as, you know, their learning people. <laughs> we were the learning audience at, with them, but, the they were, but they were far more advanced than we were <laughs> on the issue. And by them being, Latino, Spanish speaking first, living it. It was not academic. It was real. Um, it, it, I think that they 
were able to change the minds of some women whose minds would never have changed. And so when that woman, there was the woman that Yvette referred to left Chicago, part of it was because she was not embraced. You know, she was not embraced by the group and the ways there, some people had issues with her. I, I would, I would say, I don't, I wouldn't, not to be protecting Amigas, I don't think it's that she wasn't embraced by Amigas. I think it was the broader community. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Amigas yeah. didn't do anything proactively to Challenge. embrace her and to ensure, right, to right. serve. If we were about right. helping women accept themselves, mm -hmm. there I could say we failed. That, that's how I would say it. Yeah. I don't think, you know, because it was kind of like, yeah, you know, it, would, it was like when I, as a Latina, would go to a queer space and nobody else was Latina. And it's like, yeah, but you're queer. Come on and be queer. And it's like, well, yeah, but wait a minute. There's another part of me that you're not recognizing. You're not denying, but you're not affirming. And, and so, not affirming it yeah, and so that we yeah. didn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And because that's, I mean, that's how we understand all the isms to operate. You know, you walk into the room and sexism is operating, but you don't really know it before. We didn't have the words for it. Mm -hmm. You walk into a room, racism is operating, but you, you know, just didn't have the words for it. And now, you know, and so that was one of those times where you knew it was there, but you, you know, so it's like you. you welcomed her in the way you welcomed everybody, but she didn't talk about it. But we didn't talk about it because I didn't know how to talk about it. And so when Sebastian, you know, came and wanted to, we were like, we need, we need to Hell talk yeah. about. And I think by Sebastian and uh, his partner at the time, by them do modeling, pushing us, playing, we did a lot of play, role playing and dress up and all kinds of stuff. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And by doing that, whoa, baby, it released the inner whatever in a <laughs> lot of people. A lot of people. And it changed. Right. It changed minds in ways that I don't think we could ever, any, no platica could have ever changed those minds in the way. And he, so Sebastian would always be really mad at, at one, uh, someone who was uh, older than me. And um, <laughs> no matter what Sebastian said, she would, our, our friend, our older friend, would always refer to Sebastian as she, no matter what. And by the end, she was, she, she got it. She got it. She consciously got it. And, and I think, hallelujah, if you, you can change her mind. Like drop the <laughs> mic and just, you know, just lick the envelope and we're done. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> so, you know, when I think about cultural competency, you know, how do we deliver, how do we talk about change? How do, how do we engage change? How do we create change? How do we support change? That's what it looks like right then and there. You, you know, if you have that person who, you know, and got, you know, God forbid you didn't play her salsa music in the right order. She was an opinionated, she, she owned her age and demanded recognition for her age. She, and she was like the secret weapon, right? Like we went to go talk to, we used to love to go talk to other organizations that were supposedly serving either Latina women, you know, or lesbians and go, here you go. Here's a grandmother who's a deacon and is out. Listen up. Yeah. And she would be my secret weapon when yeah. we were advocating for marriage equality. So, so I would say in the sort of timeline two sort of catalytic 
things that happened to sort of say shift the organization, right? Um, to its next level was one when the National Yego Conference, uh, Yego was the um, Latino, Latina, lesbian and gay organization, it was the national, right, organization. And they would have sort of an annual conference. It came to Chicago, came to Chicago, I think in 98, right? So Amigas was only about three years old. We weren't, I mean, we weren't even an official organization like a 501c3, right? We were just kind of this social brunch group. Um, but the, the men's group, ALMA, which at the time was the Association of Latino Men for Action, had been already around for like six, seven or eight years. And part of their leadership had participated with Yego. So they were very interested in bringing Yego to Chicago. So that was an opportunity for Amigas women to get involved, right, in a different way. Um, around our issues and, and, you know, conferences. And, you know, there were some challenges there and some good things in that. But, you know, what came out of that was sort of a recognition of a quasi-steering committee like that had formed, right? So that it wasn't like just me and, and, and Mona. And so that there were enough women kind of interested in like, yeah, let's, like we've learned some stuff, but what's next? And I remember from that, there was a little support group that, that began that even though we were sort of a support group, right, as an organization, right, doing all this work in women's homes, you know, these discussions had 40, 50 women in them at a time. And I had thought, I remember thinking, all right, this is just going to turn into like a whacked thing, just be a brunch, we'll stop and make announcements, but there's no way to like have a discussion. But man, I was always sur pleasantly surprised that you know, about an hour into the brunch, everybody had been eating and all that. And you never know what kind of food was arriving, right? You'd have like 12 cakes one time, and then you'd have really good food the next time. Anyways, but about a, an hour into the brunch, women would start to gather like in the living room and bring chairs in. And, you know, some apartments, I mean, you know, Chicago apartments, you try to fit 40, 50 women, you'd have women like, you know, spilling out into the kitchen hallway. And, but they wanted to have a discussion because the flyer said, we're going to talk about this, right? And I, it, it made me so proud that women were just hungry for discourse, mm -hmm. you know, and just to share their experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the most powerful <clears throat> ones often being moms talking about having children, mm -hmm. moms who were married to men talking about it. And I remember when we once had children come and talk about being right, the children of lesbian moms and how powerful that was for women who were so scared to see again, okay, okay, right, I, I, I leave with my head held high just a little bit more. So, so that, you know, those are big discussions. So there was a little support group that began, right? And so we started creeping, and as a social worker, I knew the difference between a discussion group and a support group. And so that kind of organically grew on its own and that eventually turned into the first Spanish-speaking support group that we did sort of in partnership with the Lesbian Community Cancer Project, who became sort of a fiscal sponsor to us, you know, eventually, and let us meet at their office. And I thought that was groundbreaking, too, because nobody had been doing Spanish-speaking support groups for your identity as, as Latin and lesbian. So that was something that grew. But again, you know, those... Sunday brunches, the third Sunday of the month was again, the bread and butter. And so we would be partying Friday night at salsa night. You'd meet all new women. 
but the steering committee knew what our role was, right? To ensure that you kind of kept this division of, right? You represent Amigas, but we also like to have a good time. And then, you know, and then from that, we did some other sort of three-part series. We or, had no drinking at the, par- at, the, at the meetings. Oh, and there was no drinking. No drinking. Meetings. Was that different from yours? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, you know, in terms of how do we set safety and, you know, facilitate and manage. So it's true. I mean, there was a difference between, yeah, we would party. We could party and engage in uh, drinking, dancing, all that stuff. But when it came to Amigas, no drinking. Right. And sometimes women would walk in, right, with bottles of wine or beer, and it was just understood, no, not during that two to five hour time. And if the hostess is cool with people staying afterwards, then you could do it. But we had to officially sort of say the Amigas discussion, Platica is over. And then, you know, so that that was really important because we knew what alcohol, right? was doing, continues to do to the community. And one of the more, most and powerful- And it excluded women. If you oh, drank, yes. it excluded women who were, who were struggling sober. with sobriety. And so it was important. And then the other thing is that people just self-medicating so badly that the only way they could be there is if they drank. And so we had to be sure that uh, you couldn't do anything about pills or anything like that, but you could say no drinking. We're, we are not drinking. This is a, a drink safe space. Fa- safe space in that particular way. Yeah, you're right. We did start to put on our flyers alcohol free um, mm. space. That was important. And, and you know, and the women that who you know had been sober, you know, for I remember one for like over a decade. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, one of the more most powerful platicas we had was about alcoholism and substance abuse. Remember that. And remember that was when your, your childhood friend came oh, yeah. to, mm-hmm. and we had women from the group tell their story mm-hmm. and talk about a transformative moment for women. Right. Because mm-hmm. here I'm, I'm getting to know you right. in in this, right. As, as women who love women and we party, but, Oh, do you don't drink? And this is why, and this is who you were before. I mean, that was really powerful. So, so I would say then the other big transformative thing that happened was when one of the founding members, Aixa Diaz, um, who was a elementary school teacher, um, died suddenly. And uh, asthma, profound asthma attack she never woke up from. And it was just as Amigas was planning like, okay, we need to stop passing the hat around mm-hmm. sort of to the same women all the time. And we need to raise some more money for what we want to do. Because we were already doing activities. Yeah, we, we were doing exactly. We were doing activities. Picnics. Yeah, we started to to do activities that that met the needs mm-hmm. uh, of the women, and so many of um, many. I had children, and so a way to normalize who we were was to have uh, picnics, Mother's Day parties, all, you know, all, all different kinds of celebrate the various kinds of holidays, and it allowed for women who uh, it allowed for each of us to see parenting in different ways. So there were women who were grandmas, women who were aunts, women whose children had been taken from them, women who shared custody and to normalize children. Now, again, I'm going to have to go back in time when there, when before you could not be a teacher and be out gay, you would lose your job. And uh, there was always the the myth 
that gay people abuse children. And so many, at that time, many adults internalized that. And so we could not uh, afford to be around children, especially if you wanted to hold on to your job. And so one, a primary thing for women who had children and were raising children was we had to challenge that particular myth. And so having children, having family-oriented activities, and you didn't have to have a child to come, but uh, it helped normalize and model that, that we are parents, you know, and that parents were an integral part of, of our lives. And so we were doing more activities that were beginning to require money. So we had been planning a fundraiser and then um, Aixa died and and then, you know, we held, we sort of held our first dinner event and it was very successful and we decided to establish a scholarship fund. You know, that's what we did was the Aixa Diaz scholarship fund that was around probably seven or eight years. We partnered with what was GLSEN at the time, which is Illinois Safe Schools before, um, you know, to, to give away the, uh, the scholarships. And, and then the name of the fund, that name scholarship fund was given back to the family after a certain amount of time. And I think, and then Amigas continued a scholarship fund and then it just stopped. Then, you know, then we get into the sort of next iteration of leadership where we stepped back. But, you know, the the monthly platicas, the brunches, family activities, the Aixadia scholarship dinner, you know, were sort of the big events that we did. And all this was done volunteer. And, you know, it Mm -hmm. wasn't until around 2001, 2002 that we decided to become an official 501c3 organization. We worked with Julio Rodriguez from Alma was our sort of big brother first facilitator to help us with some strategic planning. We worked with Sylvia Puente, who's over at Latino Policy Forum now, and then Mary Morton, who really helped us to formulate the first board, you know, the bylaws and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, that was around 2002. Um, But, you know, we had already been doing a lot of good work for seven years. So, I mean, you know, I said we had 300 on a mailing list, right? It doesn't mean that 300 people showed up all the Mm -hmm. time, right? I mean, there might be a core of 50 that you could sort of count on seeing. And then depending on what the activity was, well, you know, informing the steering committee, like I said, when the Yego conference was here, that really helped, right, some of us to sort of bond around that experience. And then with AIXA, there was other connections in terms of family and friends. I remember specifically identifying one member who I would see at other queer events that were more sort of multicultural and, you know, because there were some women I only saw if it was salsa night at Paris or our, our discussions, right? It was like Latina stuff or nothing. And there were a couple of women that I would see out at other things. And, the, and, and they seemed to just be more active and, I don't know, cognizant of the diversity of, of the queer community. And those were the women that I really wanted involved. And so, you know, there was never, I think, pushback or infighting. Mm-hmm. If anything, I mean, women just, you know, self-selected out because I know mm-hmm. a couple of them moved, a couple of them got too busy. But I mean, it, you know, when I look back on it now, you know, and doing the work I do, you know, for a small volunteer run, you know, it, we were pretty efficient. We were pretty efficient, you know. I mean, our budget was never bigger than $40,000, right? It's pretty amazing. We managed to hire one administrative assistant who kind of, you know, 
took over some of the mailings and the phone calls and the coordinating and that. Well, you know, we knew we didn't want to go the route of an executive director or program director. It just, we, you know, we just didn't. So when it got to be around 2007, 2008, I think I realized that my footprint on the organization was so large that to get new energy, right, new eyes and ears, I was going to need to sort of take a step back. And so, you know, little by little, we, you know, there were we had co-chairs and then I stepped off being co-chair and stayed on the board, but then eventually I stepped off. And so I, I often say there were sort of three generations of leadership, right? So in the second generation, I think that's when Alicia Vega was chair and that was going really well. And that's when they maintained the Amigas um, scholarship. And then in the third generation, um, I was really excited for it. And I guess the other, when I look back, the other transformative thing that happened was one Christina. Christina Santiago had been on the board. She had been involved with us as a member for many years, and she used to work at Howard Brown Health Center. And she was really interested in taking a more active role, right? And, and, and that's the thing, right? You, you know, running a nonprofit is not as easy as people think. Everybody wants to get involved and help, but they don't know what that really means. You know, but I knew Christina could be a really helpful addition, right, as sort of a program person. Well, Christina was the woman that was killed in the stage collapse in Indiana um, during the um, freak windstorm. The freak windstorm. <laughs> I can't remember the concert who was running it. And when I look back at that, you know, her death, and at, at the time, another strong member of the board moved out of state. I think those two things really challenged the organization, you know, left sort of a leadership void, right? And, mm -hmm. and the leader that did step up really struggled for, I'd say, several years to kind of hold it together. Again, it would be these fits and starts of, oh, yeah, I want to help. I'm going to do this, you know, and then, oh, oh, I got to come to a meeting. Oh, I got to do this. And as Amigas was rounding the bend to its 20th, what would have been its 20th anniversary in 2015, you know, some of us founding members got together to say, you know, maybe it's time to close. Maybe um, we knew when to begin, right? We knew how to continue. Maybe it's time to close. And, you know, we had a sort of, you know, heart to heart tears and joy and laughing meeting you know, with leadership and, and just kind of, and, you know, again, as the founders just, I think had to say, you know, it's okay. You know, we got together and had a meeting and I think us as the sort of founding leadership said, it's okay, right? You know, no mas, it, it's okay. We knew when to begin, we knew how to continue. We can say it's okay to end. Um, and we knew the 20th anniversary was coming up. I just, you know, thought, well, wouldn't that be a pretty amazing thing if on the 20th anniversary, which I swear was almost to the, the same date and, you know, Saturday, if we had a big blowout celebration and that was it. And that's what we started to talk about. And so I think that, you know, part of, part of why we pulled back, you know, that says maybe her footprint was too big. So I think part of why pulling back was important, Yvette had said that she thought her footprint was too big. One thing is that by us being older and being moms, 
um, we were actually like considered the viejitas of the, you know, and so we were not attracting that younger, more creative energy. There were some, you know. Right. We had started the Amiguitas youth group, but that was for even younger. But so we were not, we were not able to cultivate this younger group, this, this new, newer generation that was fine. They were not challenged with multiple identities. They, and, and that was a, that was a beautiful thing, actually, you know, that was a, so beautiful that they were not challenged by multiply and claimed it in ways that we were probably perceived uh, to be, you know, a little older, maybe. And so pulling back uh, was, you know, we were leaving the door open for other people to step in and do what they wanted with it. And and so a lot of times, you know, I remember at the party, so many people would say, oh, why can't we do this? You know, I would help. I, you know, and, and, and I, you know, my response would be, girl, you can do it. It's all yours. It is open. <laughs> Take it. You know, if the need is there, you know, but closing w- was also about allowing for others to step in and do something because I, the, I think the perception was um, that I'm older, we were older and we were moms, you know, and, and, and that was a challenge. I remember one time, one of my, my son's uh, high school peer classmates came and I could tell she was checking me out. And I'm like, oh, honey, this is not going to go well <laughs> because we're, she was already, she wasn't gay. God forbid you yeah, she would not say she was a lesbian. She could not say she was a lesbian. I don't know why. I said I was a lesbian, but somehow. <laughs> and yet she was drawn because, of course, she was a lesbian. <laughs> but for some reason, it just it challenged her to the core to, to be her, her, her Latina self and her gay self. And perhaps we were not... I mean, she, we, we, we continued to be friends, yeah. but I could tell initially yeah. she was challenged. Wah! And it was our, our house. It was my, our house that she came to. And I could tell, oh, no, this is, oh, golly. Okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> and, I, and I remember, too, that there, I remember one of the younger women who eventually went on the next sort of iteration of the board said, well, she actually wanted to start a different organization. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. But what you're describing kind of sounds like what Amiga says. And she's like, yeah, but all you guys do is like, you talk about, you know, your identity and what does it mean to be a lesbian? And I was like, okay, I guess this is progress, huh? Um, because it became more about, you know, I guess what is now like, you know, justice issues, right? It became about women's issues, reproductive health, domestic violence, immigration, right? I mean, who are the ones at the immigration movement, right? It was young, queer, right? Latina, Latino, uh, Latinx youth sort of driving that movement, right? Who wasn't about that their fight was about being queer. It was about being undocumented in that. And so it was like, oh, that was, so that was a moment of like, oh, okay, you're right. I, I did approach this, right? As what does it mean to be Latina and lesbian? And that was the sort of the, the, the undergirding the whole time. And so in terms of that next generation, right, where this is where you 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 progress and um and that and so you know and so that when you know the decision was made you know i i mean 
I'm proud of that. You know, I, I feel that as a, as a women's organization, we owned our narrative. No, you know, nobody could be like, oh, do you remember Amigas? Yeah, I think, I don't know what they did. And I don't know if they're wrong. No, I can tell you exactly when we ended, why we ended and how. And that was the best party that was thrown. And there were so <laughs> many tears at the end when we closed out that night. It was such a cathartic moment for women who, I remember there was one woman that came back who had since sort of gone straight and got married to a man, but she was there because she loved Amigas. And, you know, I think she still identified as queer and girlfriend cried from like the time we did last call or the last song on the, with the DJ and it was pretty powerful. And so, um, yeah, I mean, those were 20 amazing years, just 20 amazing years. And mm -hmm. I think from it has spawned just women being who they are in government in nonprofits <clears throat> or just, you know, not, not again, not apologizing for who they are, any of their identities. So why did you end up deciding to donate to Gerber Hart? Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> they took up half my basement. <laughs> we were moving and it was like, okay, get, no, no. Um, yeah, they did. I mean, it was funny to, yeah. I remember one time, you remember at the first house, not only was it right that the sort of office, so like we were virtual before virtual was a thing because we never had an office in that and everything was in our bedroom, but our basement would be filled with booze, paper cups and plate because we were like the sort of I remember one center. time a police officer came in because the alarm went off or something like that and they were going to check the house before we could walk in and they went in the basement and they were like uh what is this place what do you run here I mean because we would have cases of alcohol you know and and because we would we would take everything back yep and just save it for the next event. Um, yeah. And so we had a cachet, right. but half our basement was, and then we were always looking through the photos. Somebody needed a photo. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Trying to find a special request photo <laughs> and be responsible for trying to be responsive. It's like, ah! Yeah, and, and you know, because again, I, you know, I, I was no longer sort of the board chair, the board president, whatever. And, you know, Alicia started collecting stuff and various people, you know, Alicia was really the one who worked with another intern, uh, Nomi, to start to gather the stuff mm -hmm. so that we could start to archive it. I think recognizing that no matter what happened, like this was right before we sort of closed the organization, that, um, um, that it was, you know, it was going to be important to put those materials and house them somewhere. And Gerber Hart, I mean, Gerber Hart was, you know, the queer place, right? And it just, it, I don't know. I mean, I've been asked this a couple of times, but it's like, it just made sense to me that that's where we would want it to be. And so that was really, you know, as part of the putting closure, it was just really cool to be able to, you know, gather up all that stuff I think the and, other thing, too, about it being a Chicago organization mm -hmm. and a Chicago, Gerberhardt Chicago based, that in that the gay movement in the 70s and 80s was bi-coastal mm -hmm. and it always mm -hmm. passed over Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're both Chicagoans. And as an organizer and in, as an organizer in a national organization, I always felt that Midwestern issues were overlooked because and undervalued policy was driven by east coast and west coast kind of needs and so 
I didn't want to contribute, have that, uh, that asset go somewhere else. You want that voice to be Chicago-based and therefore in Chicago and to affirm that there has been and continues to be real organizing work in Chicago. Now, fu- funny thing now, I don't feel the same way anymore. You know, I, I think that Chicago is now more recognized as a location of organization. But before I felt like we didn't even exist. They'd be like, oh, are you by Indiana? Are you in Iowa? I'd, I'd be like, really? <laughs> really? My name's Aurora Pineda. I was given a card of Amigas Latinas in 97 or 98. My name is Rosa Yadira Ortiz. I was a board member for about five years and board chair for two. My name is Dina Osman. I was a part of Amigas Latinas through <laughs> the early millennium. I can't believe I'm saying that, you know, over 20 years ago. When I came in there, I saw like all these women of all different ages, of all different Latina backgrounds, women that look like grandmas, women that look like they were in their 30s. And I saw a couple that were in their 20s like me. It was like going into a candy store. That experience was for me, at least. (laughs) I'm very openly like a queer Mexicana, a dyed Mexicana. I'm German and Mexican, and my Mexican grandmother really raised me. And, you know, that's just a part of who I am. I honestly thought only lesbians were Puerto Ricans because every time I went out to a nightclub, that's all I saw was a bunch of Puerto Rican women. No, no nothing bad to say. It's just like, is there any Mexicans? Because I want to know other women that are Mexicans that are lesbians, you know? And that's where, you know, I met my friends. And Yvette, you know, always made sure, or the board members always made sure that it was a safe community. Being surrounded by all these women, you know, like Yvette and Mona, seeing them, how they carried themselves, helped me empower myself and be who I truly was. In them, I saw a possibility for myself. Doing the work that we were doing, we were the only ones there for our community. And um, we would get so many phone calls and, you know, we have such a diverse community. I think I literally went to every single event. (laughs) I found time to go. The familia group that we had too was not was also a place where my own family was able to come out. My mom was able to have that space um, in terms of her own trajectory of coming out as an ally. It became a family process of coming out, and I to this day I give credit to Amigas as being instrumental in helping that process happen for me, for my family. I think that what helped a lot is once I came out to my parents, it's like nobody else mattered. I became a performer with the Chicago Drag Kings troupe. And so I created this persona, Andres de los Santos. And so my mom would help me. My mom was a seamstress. So my mom would help me like, you know, with my costumes and all of that. So I think all those things contribute to me being more and more comfortable. But obviously Amigas was the stepping stone. It was so much more than a social group. But the culture piece, like not having to code switch piece, the understanding that, you know, me mommy is going to be around here and like, and I'm going to be like, me mommy this and me mommy that and me mommy that. And why? Because it's me mommy. Like, you don't have to explain that piece. 
It was so much more than just having a group of friends. It means like the true sense of community. I feel celebrated and supported, and not just myself, but my whole family. So that's mi mami, mi hermana, mi abuelita, mis tías. I got married too during the, uh, my time in Amigas. I became a mother too. It's nothing short of magic, the possibilities um, that Amiga has provided for me. You know, it's more than just being proud. I'm just, I'm, I'm really happy that I was a part of it and that I still feel connected to the community. Unboxing Queer History is co-created by me, Ari Mejia, with Jen Dentel and Aaron Bell. Theme music by Danny Robles. This episode was produced by Hannah Vitti and me, Ari Mejia. Thank you so, so much to Yvette and Mona for chatting with us and sharing the incredible history of Amigas Latinas. And to Rosa Yarida Ortiz, Arora Pineda, and Dina Osman for sharing their memories as members of Amigas Latinas. Special thanks to Rails for making this podcast possible. Unboxing Queer History is funded by a Rails My Library Is grant. You can find this episode and others at GerberHeart.org and wherever you listen to podcasts.